0: Welcome to Oikos. As we begin this morning, I'm going to ask you guys to do a couple things. Um, I haven't preached for a month, so it was awesome. Didn't we have some great preachers? Awesome. They did a great job. Last week, we heard Jason speak just a little bit, introducing just a little bit about Mars Hill. And he gave us a good picture of what we're going to hear today as we continue but before we start, I want you to just close your eyes for a minute, and I want you to picture the face of Jesus. We all may have a different image there, and maybe you've never done this before, so do your best, picture the image of Jesus, and begin to kind of zoom in onto his face. As you zoom in onto his face, start zooming in to his eyes. And hold there for just a second. As you hear the message this morning, I pray that you would be looking into the eyes of Jesus and listening to his words. You can open up your eyes. Because as he speaks to you this morning, you're going to hear some things that are hard for you to hear. But I want you to be thinking about the eyes of Jesus looking right at you that he knows you, and perhaps you don't know him as well as you should, but he's inviting you into that knowledge and into that relationship. So last week, Paul was doing something similar with the Athenian people. He had walked into Athens. He walked through this great, awesome city built by the hands of men. And all he could see was that there were a bunch of temples and shrines and images built by the hands of men that the Athenians were going to for whatever they felt like they needed. They were worshiping a bunch of gods. And as he walked through, he saw one opportunity and it was a temple to the unknown god. And he saw that opportunity and he decided to stop there, turn, and speak to the people who had gathered around him. And it is the most evangelistic message that you'll probably find in Scripture because it's taking people who really have no idea who Jesus is and probably if he said, look into the face of Jesus, they wouldn't have had any idea what he's talking about. And he wants them to see that image today. That's where his heart is. He cares so deeply about these foreign people that he wants them to experience what it's like to look into the face of Jesus. And he starts in verse 24. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts 17. We're going to start one verse earlier than what we publicized because we do that all the time. So we're going to start in verse 24. And he says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He's talking about this unknown God. So he's describing who this unknown God is. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in, a man-made, in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. So Paul starts at the very beginning. He says, the God I'm talking about created all things. So even these great things that you have, just remember, he created the trees that made them. All these things that you've made out of marble and rock and granite, he created the mountains where you took it from. This unknown God is greater than any of the things that you see around you. Now, some in Athens, I could imagine, would receive this first part of the message and go, great, maybe we should give this unknown God a name. Because this is even better than the other gods. However, we'll just kind of pile them into our whole thing here. And this will be the powerful God. And the rest will be our gods that we need whenever we need something else. Because they were in a polytheist culture. Polytheist simply means that you believe in several gods. Now, as modern day intellectuals, we would discount that and say, well, none of us are polytheists. But I'm going to tell you that we probably are. Anybody think you're a polytheist? Some of you are raising your hand because you're like, whenever Aaron says, <laughs> even if I don't think I am, maybe I should raise my hand just in case. And I saw some of you guys kind of go like this. Because I don't want to be tricked. Is anybody else raising their hand? I think that we want to discount some of the things because we think we're beyond it. But what I often find in Scripture, what I often find with Jesus, is the simplest things I realize I'm not even beyond. So because of this, Paul pushes further. He challenges, he raises the bar with the Athenians. Knowledge about just some God who created everything wasn't enough for Paul. They would have accepted it and said okay and moved on. But for him, he wanted to make sure they knew the full message and not just part. We see in today that we often talk about God and everybody believes in God. Right? Everybody believes in either themselves, and they have made themselves God, or they believe in something else. I don't really know if there is an atheist. We believe in something whether it's ourselves or something else, we put all our resources and capital into it. And that becomes our God. What we see with the Athenians is they really valued intellect. And they always wanted to know more. They had great philosophers like Plato that came out of Athens. And they valued these people who were philosophical and could philosophize about whatever was coming through the, the day. And they valued it, and so they poured everything that they had into it. All of their capital went into their intellect. So when Paul begins to tell them about something that they didn't know, it was a great invitation for them to grab on and say, awesome. We are going to learn something new. And so that was the invitation from Paul. The challenge was, I'm going to tell you something new, but it's something that you thought you already knew. So I'm going to tell you something that you thought you already had figured out, but you don't. And that's the challenge. I bet some of us have been in that position before where we thought we had something figured out, Like, maybe we thought we had life figured out and then something happens and we go, ugh, why is this happening now? Why was I so stupid? How did I ever think that was right? I bet you can relate if you went to college. And you had a lot of fun, and you look back and you go, what was I thinking? I can relate to that because I streaked through our campus, (laughs) and it's one of those times I look back and say, what was I thinking? So, as a modern society, now as you got that image, go back to the face (laughs) of Jesus. We often think we're kind of past a polytheist theology. We don't operate that way. However, I want to put this upon us we are a nation and a people who love to make ourselves happy, right? We love pleasure. So I will put up today that I believe we have a temple to the unknown God of pleasure. Now, this would otherwise be called as hedonism, and hedonism is just simply defined as the pursuit of pleasure, living for pleasure. Now, as good Christians, we often say, oh, no, that's not me. I don't do that. But let's just take a little time of reflection. How many times do you think about how to please yourself? Just think in a day. How many times do you think about, oh, I want this to eat, or I want that to eat. I want this to wear. I don't, you look in your closet and go, I just don't have anything to wear. I need this house. Maybe you go to a friend's house and you're like, oh, that house is awesome. Why do I live in mine? I need a pool. Why do I have a car that breaks down? I need this. I need that. To please me. I need this person who's my friend to please me. How many times do you think about How to please yourself. Now, some of us, I'm going to say, I know some of you who you actually think about pleasing others. I'm going to put a little little flip on that. But the ironic thing is, is that you do it to please yourself. You're pleasing others, but inwardly you're going, I'm really doing this because I want people to like me. So I'm going to do this for them. It's hard, right? We think, at least, unless I'm just crazy, which I don't answer that, but I think we try to please ourselves quite a bit because I think I do. I think through the day, and I'm thinking, how can I, you know, make my life better? Where are you spending your financial capital? Where do you spend your money? How much do you spend on yourself? please yourself. How many of you have a budget? You would be surprised how many conversations I have with people when they're getting married and I talk about, we always talk about all the things. We talk about sex, money. We just go down the list. If any of you are about ready to get married, you're going to come up and talk to me. You're probably not going to now, but we just go through the whole thing because I want you to be totally prepared so everything's on the table. And so many times, the whole issue of a budget, people look at me and they're like, what? Or, oh, yeah, we kind of have a budget, which means, no, you don't. If you have a budget, look at it and just look at the percentages and go, man, how much is towards my own happiness? How much am I pushing towards myself? If you don't have a budget, I would say it would be a great exercise because it makes you a good manager of what the Lord has given you. The Athenians were doing the same thing with their resources. They were going to the various temples, and this is how they looked at the temples. They were like a drugstore. So for one temple, you would get something like good health. At another temple, you would get fertility. At another temple, you may have good crops. At another temple, it was just plain old prosperity. So they would go from one to the next and worship one idol to the next, seeking their happiness. They tried to suck in as much knowledge as they could because they thought that would bring them to a higher plane and make them better. But Jesus said this. This is a hard word from Jesus, I think, for any of us here. It's a hard word for me. So if you think it's hard, it's we're in the same boat. Luke chapter 12, verse 34. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. If you look at your budget and you start identifying where am I putting my treasure, you'll start identifying where the desires of your heart are. It's hard, right? This is not something you probably want to hear on a Sunday morning, is it? And I'm going to tell you, this is not just about money. This isn't, you may be going, oh, no, he's going to be talking about tithing here. This isn't about tithing. This is about where your heart is and identifying where are your desires because that's where your heart is. And that's why we started by trying to see the image of Jesus and asking you, is your desire for Jesus or is it elsewhere? So Paul would later write to his disciple Timothy. He'd write these words. In 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. I think that happened before this, but anyways. Disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll be considered nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. Kind of explains why so many relationships end, right? They will slander others and have no self-control. The latest gossip magazines really do sell out, don't they? The Facebook post that talks about the best gossip gets the most hits. They'll be cruel, and they'll hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Where's your own pleasure or comfort come before the invitation of Jesus to follow him? Where's your own pleasure or comfort come before the invitation to follow Jesus? That's a good question, huh? I did write it. No, I'm just kidding. Think about that. God says that the true lasting pleasure is not found in the things that we think that we think will bring us pleasure. He says something different in Psalm 16 verses seven through 11. "I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for He is right beside me." No wonder my heart is glad, and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your body, your Holy One, to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. God defines pleasure as being with him. That as you're with him, as he is with you, As he lives in you and you move with him, you will find pleasure. He wants you to direct all your resources towards that. Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in the late 1880s. Probably none of us have ever met him because he's dead now. He is a great writer but he was known as the Prince of Preachers. I guess he was awesome. He wrote something about what idols look like. He says, whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight is his God. So what are you depending on? What have you put your hope into? When something happens, who do you turn to? What's running around in your mind today that actually has taken over your thoughts? Where do your affections lead you? Where do you find your biggest delight? When you ask those questions, can you say, Man, it's always God? Or is it something else? Spurgeon would also say, following up to this first quote, If you love anything better than God, you are idolaters. If there's anything you would not give up for God, it is your idol. Ooh, that's hard, right? That's like worse than what I'd say. That's why I use this quote. If there's anything that you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, that's your idol. And conversion means a turning from every idol. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This morning, I want us to really center in on some of the things that have been building that wall from us being able to see Jesus and to see that invitation that he gives to each of us to come close to him. To know that whatever is affecting our heart today, whatever is ruling our thoughts, we can push those aside and look into his eyes. Know that there's peace. There's restoration. There's healing. There's hope. No matter what you find yourself in, no matter what desire seems to be overcoming your heart right now, that Jesus is inviting us to look at him. He's inviting us to be with Him. So as you pray and you seek Him, ask the Lord to convict your heart. This is kind of a scary prayer, but we can do it. Say, convict me, Lord, of those things that are getting in the way. Some things we may not even realize, and that's the scary part, is that He'll reveal the things that we didn't even realize were happening. Ask him, Lord, help me reveal how to better spend my capital, my resources, the things you've given me, the time, my relationships, all the things that you have put into me, my intellect. Help me to push them towards you and not elsewhere. I'll tell you that your appetite can rule your thoughts. So for an alcoholic, what rules their thoughts? Alcohol, not a trick question. For an alcoholic, what rules their thoughts? Alcohol. They have a deep desire, right? I have friends who have been sober for about 30 years, haven't had a drink, great accomplishment, right? They only did it because they had friends who kept them accountable. But when they talked about before they did, decided that this was ruling their thoughts and they needed to push it aside, they explained how that desire would just overcome them. It was, they wouldn't be thinking about it, and then all of a sudden it'd just be like, I've got to have a drink. They'd see a commercial and they'd go, I have to have a drink. A certain smell will come in the air, I have to have a drink. And Satan uses that appetite of us. Not all of us have the same problem with alcohol as an alcoholic. But he may use your appetite in other things. And what we do is we spend all our capital. So an alcoholic, when they give in to that desire, what do they do? They spend their intellect by hiding it. And some of them are brilliant. They spend their financial capital by buying it, figuring out ways to hide it, any way that they can to make sure they can get that drink. They spend their relationship capital by looking for their drinking buddies and pushing the other relationships aside. It's what we do, right? They spend their physical capital sitting at the bar drinking. That's what happens when you allow a desire to overtake your your heart, is that all your capital starts being pushed into it. And all of a sudden, that becomes your God. That's what you live for. That's what you would die for. And let me tell you, Alcohol is not a friendly God, right? I don't think anyone can say it's ever loved them back. Now, some of you would go, well, it's been kind of fun sometimes, right? And you go, well, that's a pastor talking. It's a lot of fun sometimes. Sorry, I just saw something roll there, and I thought it was a mouse. (laughs) I'm not scared of mice, but all of a sudden, I was like, are you serious? So, appetite. How do you fulfill your appetite? If it's not alcohol, what is it that pulls you in and you can't stop? And sometimes you go, how did I ever get caught in this? I'm expending everything so I can have it, and it really doesn't love me back. For others, we go to ambition. It drives us the choices that you make, and maybe it's about your career or your business, or maybe it's about your family, maybe it's about being mommy of the year. Or maybe it's about your kids' success. Don't we see that? I'm going to succeed through your success. So I will drive all my capital in that area. Just start thinking about the things where you start pushing everything that you have into it because you think it will bring you pleasure. For others, it's approval. I alluded to this earlier that many times people who are dealing with this temptation of approval, they'll do anything to retain a relationship. So they'll do anything. They'll say yes when they should have said no. They'll compromise a value that they have in their own life because the guy says, if you want to be with me, hey, give it up. And they seek that approval and they push all their capital towards it. Think about the girlfriend who shouldn't be dating the boyfriend who doesn't honor her. What does she do with all her capital? Every moment of the day, she's looking for a text from him. Every moment of the day, she's thinking, how can she buy something or do something for him? Every moment of the day, she's thinking, how can I make this work? She's using all her capital for a relationship that maybe isn't the right time and probably isn't. So today, God is asking you to put those temptations aside, to put those idols aside. And Paul does the same with the Athenians. Remember, he started out with this invitation of kind of, I'm going to tell you something you didn't know. You love learning stuff. Let me tell you about this unknown God who you don't know that much about. He gives them a bunch of information and they're kind of sucked in. And then he turns it. And he answers the question that they all want and I'd say that we still want today. Tell me the meaning of life. What is life really about? And he says in verse 27, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 27, His purpose, this unknown God, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us, for in Him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God is not distant. He's not this object that we can never touch. He's close at hand. He's asking you just to grope around and try to find him. Because he's right there. He's findable. He's not hidden. I not only get life from him. I'm not only created from him, but he lives in me. Not only does he live in me, but as I move, he moves. And I try to make my life move with him because that's where I'll find pleasure, the psalmist reminds us. He tells us in this short scripture that we are his children, we're his heirs. Of everything he ever has had, his kingdom is ours. We are his princes and princesses of his kingdom. He's turning everything over to us. He's a living and active God, not some God that's found in some pleasure. It'll be great for a moment, then lost forever. Verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Key verse here, because he turns everything upside down for the Athenians. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has proved to everyone who this is By raising him from the dead. Even the Athenians had heard about this Jesus guy who was crucified. It was all over the Roman Empire. This was crazy stuff. They had heard about him, but they didn't necessarily believe in him. They thought it was some Jewish crazy thing. But here it is. Paul saying to the Athenians, This is your God. This is the unknown God. He gives life, he resurrects life, and he will judge life. There's only one person appointed to do this. And he is not Buddha. He's not Mohammed. He's not your God of pleasure. And he's not even Moses. He's Jesus. And that presents a crisis for everyone. It presents a crisis in our culture because we want everyone to just say, well, as long as you believe in something, it's okay. But that's not what Scripture teaches. And when we face what Scripture teaches we have to present ourselves with this crisis. And it presents another question. What do you do with Jesus? Turn back. Think about that face that you constructed in your mind, that face of Jesus as you narrowed in and looked into his eyes. What do you do with that man? What do you do with that man He's 100% man and 100% God? What do you do with that man who, in the song before the message, spilled water and blood for you? What do you do with this man that many would call a crazy lunatic, but the only thing he ever really did was love? What do you do with the man who loved you? Do you just believe whatever you want? Or do you take his words in and let the crisis begin? So what do you do with his words? What do you do when he asks you to follow his ways? What do you do when he empowers you to do his works? Do you ignore it? Do you avoid it? What do you do with Jesus? When you are seeking pleasure, what do you do with Jesus? When you put other things before God, what do you do with Jesus? The Athenians had the same crisis. And these are this is what happened. Verse 32, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. I will tell you, many will do this. They will hear that you are a follower of Jesus, and they will laugh at you in contempt, because you must be very stupid to believe in such an archaic thing. But others said. We want to hear more about this later. You will find this too as you confront people with this crisis about who Jesus is. Because I don't believe in our society that people are against Jesus. They just haven't got to meet Jesus. They don't really know the fullness of Jesus. And that's why he sent us out so that we can develop a relationship that brings them closer to who Jesus really is. Verse 33, that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. I mean, the guy that joined him held a Greek god... God's name. He was named after one of the Greek gods. He was a high member of the council, and yet these words, when he was presented with the crisis of Jesus, created faith, and he decided to follow. My prayer is that as many will laugh in contempt and say, I don't care about Jesus or what he thinks about my day to day activities or where I'm at with him. Others will begin to say, tell me more. And still others will say, I want to follow. I pray as a church that we will be presented with this crisis, whether we're already followers of Jesus, or maybe we're on the edge asking, give me more information. Tell me more about who Jesus is. Help me experience him through the way you live your life. Because that's who we're supposed to do. That's what, who we're supposed to be. As from who we are called, as children of Him, that we get to represent Him. So that people can have a crisis about what do I do with Jesus? And then perhaps they'll believe. Because He is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. And He is the one who invites us into everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your message today. And if there's a crisis that was presented, Lord, I pray that you would work in those hearts. If there's a little bit of rebellion of saying, well, I don't even know if I want to ask that question about what I do with Jesus. How about I just ignore it? Lord, I would urge you to move in their hearts because your spirit is already working in them if they're questioning even in the smallest bit about who your son is. We believe in supernatural things, Lord, because you are supernatural. So I pray for a supernatural act to happen in those hearts where they would come to believe in your son. And for those of us who are laughing with contempt, Lord, May we be peace bringers to them. We are not the judge, you are. So help us to love and bring peace and embrace so that they can meet your son, even if they laugh with contempt. We know that many laughed with contempt on the day that your son died on the cross. And even after their laughter, some of those, some of the soldiers, some of the people, some of the Roman citizens turned and believed. It's never too late. In your name we pray. Amen.